Good morning. It's good to be back uh, from the, the left coast. I was out there visiting my son, who now lives on the, well, he doesn't live on the left coast. He lives in the desert of South Cali- Southern California, in the desert. And uh, so I was out visiting him. And uh, can I tell you, I, I just have a report to give. There's Christians out there in California. Uh, one, yeah, I, I had a guy, uh, was a taxi driver for me, and uh, he's a dear brother in Christ. His name was Ralph, and we had a, quite a conversation. So there's churches out there and Christians and everything. Contrary to popular opinion here in the Midwest, there are Christians in California. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Kings chapter 1. I know, it's Palm Sunday. Why are we in 1 Kings? It doesn't make any sense. Well, you'll see. We'll get there. But it's Palm Sunday, and it's the day that we traditionally talk about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem in the days leading up to his crucifixion on Good Friday and then his resurrection on what we call Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday. Um, And so we're going to be talking about that. Today's the beginning of Holy Week. And so um, we are going to talk about the triumphal entry, but we're going to start with an Old Testament uh, an Old Testament narrative. Now, Jesus is about ready to enter into the belly of the beast, right? Jerusalem is not a friendly town for Jesus. Uh, G- Jerusalem is controlled by the uh, religious, Jewish religious leaders of the day, the ph- Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, teachers of the law. And um, I can only imagine the anxiety, especially that the disciples felt, because their, their reception in Jerusalem has not been warm. And so uh, I, I imagine that when Jesus said, hey, we're going to Jerusalem, they wait, we're going where now? Uh, but that's where they're going. They're not well appreciated there. Today we're going to talk about that. But in order to gain a deeper understanding of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we're going to talk about it, uh, an older episode in Israel's history, when another man rode into Jerusalem on the back of a beast of burden. So we're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 1, and the big question that we're going to answer today is how does 1 Kings 1 aid in our understanding of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the text and make some comments along the way in 1 Kings 1, and then a little bit later we'll spend some time in Matthew 21, and we'll hear Matthew's account of the triumphal entry. 1 Kings chapter 1 beginning in verse one. Now, King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore, his servant said to him, let a young woman be sought for my lord, the king. Let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms so that the lord, the king, may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag, the Shunammite, And brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Already you're going, what are you doing, Pastor Scott? This is weird. (laughs) Basically, the king's attendants have found a young lady to be David's electric blanket. You know, I mean, it's you can't get warm, so you know what do you do when you can't get warm? If you put enough blankets on, you get an electric blanket, right? So they didn't have electricity back then, so this is what they did. It's strange. But here's what, to, here's what is of note. David is old, and what does it typically, you guys can answer this, what does it typically mean when an older person has a hard time keeping warm? What's that mean? Poor circulation, right? His heart is giving out. Uh, he's, he's experiencing poor circulation, 
And so he's not in good health. That's the thing to note. Verse five, now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself saying, I will be, I will be king. I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen, 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man. He was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet and Shimei and Rei, David's mighty men, were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened calf by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers and the king's sons and all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah or the mighty men or Solomon, his brother. So you see what's going on here. Adonijah has declared himself king. And in a display of his kingness, he has prepared chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. He's never been told no by his father. Never been told that. He's good looking. And he was able to convince some important people to get on board with the idea that he would be king. So I want you to imagine that David, David has this kind of circle of advisors. It's the powerful men in the kingdom. And those men consist of prophets like Nathan and priests like Zadok and military men like Joab and the other ones of David's so-called mighty men, okay? So he's got all these advisors, And Adonijah goes to these advisors and introduces his plan to be king. And what happens? Most of them say, hey, go pound sand. David's the king. We're loyal to him. I know he's old. I know he's in poor health, but he's the king. But a few of them, Joab and Abiathar and a few others, peel off of this advisory team and say, okay, Adonijah, we'll follow you as king. Now, if you're Joab and Abiathar, you're probably asking yourself, what am I going to do here? You know, let's be real. The king, the king's not doing so hot. Literally, he cannot stay warm. He's got this young lady laying in his arms to to keep him toasty. He's, and and maybe, maybe this is sheer speculation. So take it as that. Maybe David is not cognitively as sharp as he used to be. Okay. And so, If you're Joab and Abiathar, you go, gee whiz, the king hasn't named a new king. Here's one of his sons saying that he's going to be the king. If this all works out, I can stay in the circle of power. But if this doesn't work out, eh, it's not going to be good. But David's not making any decisions. Okay, I'm going to go with Adonijah. So they made a decision. You're either going to be inside the circle of power, you're going to be outside. They made a decision to follow Adonijah. Now, some other important people were not with Adonijah, and he proceeded to make a sacrifice. He made sacrifice of animals, various animals, and he did not invite his, the advisors that did not agree with him. He did not invite them to the party. Okay, so you see what's going on there. Verse 11, then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, have you not heard that Adonijah, the king of, uh, the son of Haggith is 
has become king and David our Lord does not know it. Interesting stuff. Now, therefore, let me give you some advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son, Solomon. Now, back in those days, when you would be elevated to king, if there was intrigue around that at all, you wanted to wipe out all anybody who would challenge you, right? So when Adonijah became king, if enough people accepted that, he may choose to go on the warpath against Solomon and others like him that might say, you're not the king. So that's kind of how the ancient world worked. And so uh, their lives were probably in danger. Verse 13, go in, go in at once to King David and say to him, did you not, my Lord, the king, swear to your servant saying, Solomon shall reign after me and he shall sit on my royal throne? Why then is Adonijah king? And while you are still speaking with the king, I will also come in after you and confirm your words. Interesting. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king and the king said, what do you desire? She said to him, my Lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my Lord, the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fatted calf and sheep in abundance and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon, your servant, he has not invited. And now, my Lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my Lord, the king, after him. Otherwise, it will come to pass when my Lord, the king, sleeps with his fathers, i.e. he dies, that I and my son Solomon will be counted as offenders. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in and they told, and he, and they told the king, Nathan, here is Nathan the prophet. And, the, and when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king, his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my Lord, the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen and fatted cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited the king's sons, the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him and saying, long live King Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king, and have you not told your servants who sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Who should sit on the th throne of, the, my, uh, the, of my lord the king after him? So you see what's going on here. Uh, again, take this as speculation because that's exactly what it is. Maybe Nathan and Bathsheba know David is not as cognitively sharp as he once was. And so their plan is for Bathsheba to go in and say what's happening and for Nathan to go in right after that and say what's happening again. So David kind of remembers what's going on. Don't know, but uh, maybe it was just to give more credibility to the account so that everybody would know that it was true, right? So that's what happens. Uh, Nathan and Bathsheba make a plan and they go in and they talk to the king. Verse 28, then the king answered, call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king and the king swore saying, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity 
as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so, I will do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king and said, My Lord, King David, live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servant of your Lord, and have Solomon ride my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne for he shall be king in my place as I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, amen. May it be as the Lord, may it be, may the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, say so. As the Lord had been with my Lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of the Lord, King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on the king on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! And the people went up after him, playing pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. Here comes the fun part. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they were finished feasting. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, what does this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest came and and, and Adonijah said, come in, for you are a worthy man and bring good news. Jonathan answered Adonijah, no. (laughs) I love it. Jonathan answered Adonijah, no, for the... (laughs) For the Lord King David has made Solomon king. And the king has sent with him Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And they have made him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon. And they have gone up from there with rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. And this is, this noise is that you have heard. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. And the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose and went each his own way. I'm imagining it was like this. Oh, Solomon's king. Okay. Oh, it's getting late. The sundial thing on my watch is, Uh, see ya. (laughs) I was never here. If anybody asks, they're going over to the guest book. Mark my name off. I was never here. And all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose and went and took 
hold of the horns of the altar. So this is back in the tabernacle days. He probably, the, the altar was kind of a safe, sacred space. So he went to the altar and he clung on to the, to the horns, the corners of the altar, because <clears throat> there he thought, no, you know, he's not going to get killed there, right? Then it was told Solomon, behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, and here I think Solomon is already displaying the great wisdom that eventually he would become known for. Solomon said, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one hair of his not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So he doesn't say a yes or no. He says, it kind of depends on Adonijah. So King Solomon sent and they brought him down from the altar and he came and paid homage to the king, to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. Okay, let's stop right there. We see what's going on here. David had announced Solomon would be king. David tells them to have Solomon ride on his own mule. A mule is different than a donkey. I want to admit that. A mule is, is um, uh, the product, I think, of a, of a male donkey and a female horse. Uh, it's known to be a little bit more, um, more, have more endurance than a horse, but more intelligence and agility than a donkey. So it's kind of a, in the middle there. Uh, so he's, but he's writing on, the point is a mule is a beast of burden, right? Solomon was made king and Adonijah found out about it. This reality caused great fear among Adonijah and his party because what do you do with people who committed treason, which is basically what happened here? You, you end them, <laughs> typically, if somebody commits treason against your country. But uh, they did not, Solomon did not do that. Solomon showed grace to Adonijah. Now, let's get into the outline. Uh, Let's, let's first look at, in, in, in the outline, I kind of flipped it on its head. I give kind of the bullet points and then the main, the main point. And I, I did that just because it, it seemed right to me to do that in this case. But Adonijah prepared horses and chariots and men. And why did he do this? Well, it, it turns out in the ancient world, from everything that I've read and discerned, that, that you would do that kind of for this reason. The reason that, that China or any other world superpower has a military parade. Why does, why does a big country, a superpower, have a military parade? Really for two reasons. It sends an internal message to other people in the country. Look at this military we have. Do not mess with us. And it sends a message to the world, right? Do not mess with us. We will launch these missiles at you. You know, uh, Adonijah comes in on chariots. Chariot of a chariot back in those days was kind of a modern day tank, is what is everything that I've read. And so he was putting on display, "I'm Adonijah. I am the king. Don't don't even try it. Don't try it. Don't mess with me. I've got I've got power here. I've got some I've got some military might behind me. Don't you do it." Now, interestingly. David prepared a mule for Solomon. Now again, typically when a leader rides into a town on a mule or a donkey or, or a beast of burden like that, it's, it's, it's not to announce military power and prowess and might. It's usually to announce peace, typically. It's to announce the end of uh, conflict, warfare. Um, and I, find it, I also find it interesting that both of these 
men, Adonijah and Solomon, went through some sort of a religious ceremony. Solomon sacrificed a whole bunch of animals, but, uh, but um, Solomon went through an anointing, right, by the priest and the prophet. So what's the difference? What's the difference here? Well, there are pretty big differences, right? Uh, Adonijah is trying to project power, authority, majesty, the sleekness of a horse, the, the, uh, <clears throat> the cool military might of, a, of men and chariots. Whereas it seems like that David and Solomon, David, it's his orders, right? David is trying to project humility. He's trying to project humility. And, and I find this very interesting too. In, in 1 Kings 1, as, as David is talking, he, he makes a statement that you could just kind of read past if you're not paying attention. But in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 29, when they ask him what to do, he says this, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity. He, track with me here. I, Adonijah seems to be building his kingdom on military might and fear. And David says, God's in control. God's in control. God has rescued me out of every adversity. God is the one who is in control. He's the one that I'm building my kingdom on. Interesting stuff. Adonai just seemed to be fixated on the pomp and flash of being king, while David recognized that being a king may be more of a burden to bear than it is something to be admired by men. Adonijah announced power. David announced Solomon as coming in peace, which kind of leads us to the, to the triumphal entry, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. I find it interesting, interesting that Jesus arrives into Jerusalem on a beast of burden, a donkey. And while it's true that I think a lot of Jerusalem, at least historically, we've been told this, and, and this has been something that's been passed down to us, that the hope, the great hope of Israel was that Jesus would come and rescue them from the Roman Empire and restore them to autonomous rule and perhaps even be their king. That wasn't the peace, the type of peace, military peace, that Jesus was announcing in riding in on that donkey. He was announcing the peace that's talked about in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 where we see, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean that just a few days after this, Jesus would lay down his life and die on what we call Good Friday to pay the penalty for our sin? In other words, Jesus has come in and announcing peace. Peace has arrived but not military police, uh, peace, not political peace. He's announcing peace with God. What does that mean? What does it mean to have peace with God? When Adonijah and his party found out that David had named Solomon king of Israel, they trembled. They trembled. Why did they tremble? They trembled because they knew they were in conflict with the rightful authority. They knew that they were in conflict with the king of Israel and that he had the authority to authority to imprison them or even to kill them as traitors to the nation. Now, instead, Solomon chose to show peace, to show grace. Folks, how much more meaningful is it that because of our sin, your sin and my sin, we stand in conflict with 
the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the name that is above every name, the one that's not only able to take our lives, but also to cast us into hell. And yet, though we were enemies with God, the Bible clearly tells us that we were enemies with God, this man, Jesus Christ, rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey several days later, laying down his life to pay for the very sins that we, who were his enemies, perpetrated against the holy God. Does anything else matter? Does anything else but peace with God that we enjoy through Jesus Christ, does anything else matter? Yes, we go through conflict. Yes, we go through difficult times. Yes, your math homework is due tomorrow, students. I'm sorry. But all of those burdens, all of the cares that we have in this life, the medical things that we go through, pale in comparison to the reality that right now, if you are in Jesus Christ, you enjoy, because of what he did, you enjoy peace with God. That the trials and the tribulations that you go through, the things that happen to you on this life, are now, according to Romans 8, all designed for your good, to shape you and mold you into Christ's likeness. He's no longer your enemy. God has sent the Holy Spirit into your life as an agent to, shape, to change you and transform you into Christ. This is good news. This is very good news. Does anything else matter? Does anything else, in the vast scheme of things, if you could have your dream car, your dream house, your dream spouse, <laughs> does any of that matter if you don't have peace with God? No, ultimately it doesn't matter at all. Ultimately the road leads to hell. But God sent his only son, Jesus. And on Palm Sunday, he came riding into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, not flaunting his power, which he's full of, by the way. He could, with a word, speak things into and out of existence. Not flaunting any of that. He came humble on the back of a beast of burden to announce peace. Take your Bible and turn to Matthew 21. And I'm just going to read a little bit. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1. Matthew 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put uh, on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. That was a sign of respect. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered, this, and he entered Jerusalem, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus came announcing peace. 
Now, back to 1 Kings chapter one. Let's, I just wanna do a little bit of an analysis of, of who Adonijah brought to the table and who David brought to the table to, to uh, get done what, what they were trying to accomplish. First of all, prophets. Interestingly, Adonijah did not bring one. He did not have in his host of advisors anybody, any of the prophets who would support him. Nathan wouldn't support him. And so I just find it interesting that Adonijah did not consult, seemingly did not consult with God through one of his prophets. Now, I don't want to make too much of this. It's just, it's a kind of an argument from silence, but there's no prophets listed on his advisory team. And I just want to say, I just want to say as as an aside, I have been involved in situations, whether they be in the church that I'm in, whether that be the church that I came from, the church, whatever, or churches in the area. I have been involved in situations where I have observed church leaders making decisions for the wrong reasons. Maybe the argument goes like this. If we make this decision, though God's word is clear what we ought to do, if we make this decision, we will lose a big donor. If we make this decision, we will honk off a pretty good segment of our church and they will be angry with us. Though it's the right thing to do, though God's word is clear, we might honk them off and, and that would not be good. And so let's, let's take the pragmatic approach. Let's do what works. I think that was a little bit of Adonijah's problem. Here's a problem. The king is old. He's not naming anybody. I'm just going to be the king. Let me just say this. The agreement that we have with one another as fellow church members, forget about church leadership and elders and stuff, but the the agreement that we have as church members, the thing that binds us together is the word of God, amen? In other words, we're going to, we've agreed that when, when, when my way and your way come into conflict, that if God's word, as God's word speaks to that thing, we're going to do it God's way. And, and now that we're talking about leadership, you know, let's talk about leadership for a little bit. Church leadership is not, uh, you know, the elders of this church don't have unilateral authority to do whatever we want. We have the authority to do what God's word says. And so when, it, when church leadership, any church leadership, steps away from God's word and starts operating the church in a pragmatic fashion or not consulting God's word, that's when you should leave. <laughs> that's when you should leave because that's what holds us together. That's what binds us together is the word of God that Adonijah did not consult. We also see priests. There was Abiathar, but he... Uh, Adonijah seemed to be able to get Abiathar on his side, but Zadok was on David's side. He, he did not go for that. And there were also military men, Joab, who it's interesting about Joab because if you go back and look at the history, Joab and David had kind of a, an illustrious history of fighting alongside each other and, and being very productive in their battles and things like that. They had a history together, but now Joab decides to side with Adonijah. Interesting. But Benaiah did not. He stuck with he was loyal to David. Now, again, what's the difference? Why do, I, why do I point this out? I point this out for the following reason. Oops, let me go back. I point this out for the following reason. Adonijah is typical of, and, and let me just, okay, let me cut to the chase. 
the, the whole direction that this sermon is gonna end up at is the only one who is worthy to follow, the only one who is worthy to follow in terms of leadership in your life and in mine is Jesus Christ. It's, that's the only, he's the only one who is worthy to be followed. And, and to, it, to the degree, to the extent that church leadership or any leader for that matter is trying to do things God's way, they're worthy to be followed as well. But to the degree that they're not, to the degree that they give themselves over to pragmatism, to, to, to whatever works today, to sticking their finger up in the wind and saying, well, this is the way the culture is going, so I'm gonna get on board too so that I can get reelected and keep my power. Those people, those men and women are not to be followed at least not by thinking Christians. So Adonijah is typical of many leaders that I see today, whether they be church leaders, political leaders, whatever kind of leader. They're, they're very, he's very typical, especially in the political world, but also in the church world. When, when he told David's advisory board, the prophets, the military men, the, the priests, when he told them what he was gonna do, that he was gonna be king, some of those guys like, Abiathar and Joab got on board with the idea, but others did not. And what did Adonijah do? <laughs> it's very typical of our world today. He said, okay, I'm gonna form a coalition with Abiathar and Joab and, and everybody who thinks the way I think. And those other guys aren't gonna get invited to the party. I'm gonna to listen to the voices I wanna to listen to and I'm gonna reject the voices that don't, that, that don't say what I want them to say. We live in this world, amen? If, if you don't like the way the news media is reporting a specific incident, it just rubs you the wrong way, you just flip over to the other channel where they're reporting it the way you wanna hear it. That's the world we live in today. I don't know if you see that, but that's, the, that's where we live. It's crazy. He, he listened to the voices he wanted to listen to and he rejected the voices that he did not want to hear. Once Adonijah got the festivities for his coronation underway, he invited those who agreed with him and he rejected those who did not. This is a very dangerous form of leadership. And oh, by the way, it's, a various, it's, it's dangerous for folks to lead that way and it's dangerous for folks to follow leaders like that. But it's all too familiar in our culture right here in the United States and even in the church. Go back in the history of the church and do an examination sometime when you're, when you're bored, you know, and you want to just read a lot on church history. Go back and read, why are there 43 kinds of Baptists? Why are there several different versions of Presbyterian? Why do we have Methodists and Episcopals and Anglicans and Orthodox and Independent and Pentecostals and Christian Church and Holiness Church and Lutherans. Why do we have all those? Because at some point in church history, somebody said, we're gonna emphasize these things. Are you with me? Because if you're not with me, you just stay over there because this group's gonna emphasize these things. It's sad. Why doesn't the church speak with a more unified voice today into the cultural things that are going on? I mean, my goodness, the church's voice is needed. In our culture today, we're trying to redefine everything about life. But we disagree on things. Often not core fundamental things, but often they are core fundamental things. We found that emphasizing our particular beliefs and our values, our particular values are more important than emphasizing unity and listening to the word of God, what it plainly says, and it's divided the church. 
Anyway, David is the only one who has the authority to name the next king. And what's more, David is a guy who tends to listen to God. And so we read places like 1 Chronicles 22, 6 through 10, where we, where we see this. This is David. Then he, David, called for Solomon, his son, and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you shall shed, you have shed much blood and waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies for his name shall be called, shall be Solomon and I will give him peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son. I will be his father and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. David was the only one David listened to the voice of God and David was the only one who had the authority to name the king. Likewise, Jesus came riding into Jerusalem. Jesus, who had been validated by God. Through what? Through the prophets who spoke of the coming Messiah. Through his signs and wonders that he performed on the earth. Healing the sick, restoring sight to the blind, and even resurrecting the dead man Lazarus. He did all these things as God the Father validated him as God the Son. He was the only one. And so what do we see here? We see both in 1 Kings 1 and also we'll see later in, after the triumphal entry that there is true leaders revealed and false leaders rejected. True leaders revealed and false leaders rejected. David's move to name Solomon as king immediately exposed who were the true leaders and who were the false leaders? Who's the false ones? Adonijah, Abiathar, right? Um, Joab, they're the false leaders. Who's the real leaders? Nathan, Solomon, uh, Zadok the priest, Benaiah. Immediately it became clear to everyone who were the true leaders and who were the false leaders. Now, if, we, if you're still in Matthew 21, uh, I'm just going to flip over to chapter 23 because Jesus, after his triumphal entry, he comes in and he immediately, he immediately comes into Jerusalem and he begins to discredit the false leaders of the day. And who were they? Well, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you can, you can see if you just scan with your eyes, Matthew 23, verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, Verse 16, woe to you blind guides. Verse 23, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 25, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. 27, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Again and again, Jesus comes into Jerusalem announcing peace and immediately it becomes clear who is the true leader and who are the false leaders. True leaders are revealed. False leaders are rejected. All right, last point. Even though David was called a man after God's own heart, Solomon was the rightful, and Solomon was the rightful king of Israel, these men, David and Solomon, are far, far, far away from perfect. 
All they do is they point forward and, and they, they remember, they, they show us how flawed they are in their lives. I mean, you know about, if, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know about David's past with Bathsheba and you know Uzziah, Uriah the Hittite. And you know about Solomon's future. It's not a good one. Still, this is called Israel's heyday. It's golden age. But these men, they point to the fact that we need a better leader who would come, one who would not fall prey to the traps of sin. So let's look at some contrasting points here. Adonijah exalted himself. First Kings 1.5 5 tells us that. He exalted himself and he gathered the horses and the chariots and whatever. Jesus, on the other hand, humbled himself. Philippians 2. I know you know this passage of scripture. It's definitely one to keep at the forefront of your mind. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's what Jesus did. What was God's reply? Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In God's economy, the things that we appreciate as human beings, as leaders, they're good looking. They come from a good family. They, they project power and authority. Those things are meaningless in God's economy. Meaningless. What's, what is God's, what, what is meaningful in God's economy? Someone like Jesus Christ who is humble and though he was God, did not count that as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He came to this earth. He took on the form of a man. He died on the cross for the very enemies whose sin put him there. And he did it willingly. Didn't have to. He did it willingly, obediently to God the Father. This is the leader we should follow, Jesus Christ. We also see things like, at the time of David and Solomon, it's called Israel's golden age, but, but even then, um, David failed to plan for transition. He's sitting in a sick bed. He, circulation's poor. He can't stay warm. Apparently, he's not thinking too clearly. And in the vacuum of David's poor leadership, bad actors like Adonijah stepped into the picture to say, I will be king, to fill the void. And it would, it, it would have happened had God not ordained that David, David's wife, Bathsheba, and Nathan the prophet take action. Now, this last point is, I think, very critically important. Uh, but let me just say, Solomon eventually took foreign brides in order to secure his kingdom. If you go back and you look at, we don't have to read it, but if you go back and look at 1 Kings 11, it makes it very clear that Solomon, what did he take? 700, 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. In other words, back then, the thinking was, in order to secure peace with Egypt, for example, I need to marry Pharaoh's daughter. I need to bring her into the kingdom, and that, that marriage will help keep us safe from Egypt. Why would Egypt attack their own, you know, 
daughter. And, and so what Solomon did was he took all these foreign brides in order to secure the kingdom. And what did it do? According to 1 Kings 11, it drew his heart away to other gods. And he began to establish places of worship for these false gods in Israel even. It was an ab- and, and it says right here in first that Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem, right next to Jerusalem, where Solomon had built a house, a temple for the worship of God Almighty, right to the hill to the east of that. He built worship centers for false gods. That's how much his heart was drawn away. Solomon took foreign brides in order to secure his kingdom. But check this out. Jesus laid down his life to secure his bride, the church. The difference is staggering. So what we see here is true leadership displayed. True leadership displayed. It is arguable that David and Solomon were the greatest two kings of Israel who ever lived, who ever sat on the royal throne, and they don't hold a candle to Jesus Christ. They do not hold a candle to such a, a, a person, a being who's fully God, fully man. They were leaders who often sought for their own, their own pleasures, their own power, their own wisdom, their own security. And Jesus did not do that. He laid his life down for us. So what's the answer to the big question? The answer to the big question is this. First Kings chapter one helps us to understand how a meagerly dressed man riding on a donkey could be the only one worthy to be followed. Folks, there's a lot of folks walking around in this life and they're trying to set an example for us to follow. They're selling us their books, their tapes, their CDs, and they're saying, come follow my method, do it my way and you'll, you'll be rich. Do it my way, you'll be happy, do it my way. There's political leaders that promise, if you follow me, if you vote for me, we will restore this, we will do that, we will. Make Jesus Christ the one that you follow first. Use him as your standard and guide. If if someone is trying to follow Christ, then they may be worthy to get on board with, but if they're not following Christ at all, what, (laughs) what fellowship does darkness have with light? I gotta ask you, none. A meagerly dressed man riding on a donkey coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is the only one worthy for us to follow. By way of application, let me just say a couple things. First of all, just two things. First of all, allow the reality of peace with God to be a comfort for you. I know that in this life, look, I read stuff. I look at the news. They say that 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 um, anxiety and 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 you know, uh, behavioral health issues are on the rise. People are struggling out there. And I get it. There's, there's a lot of things that are in this world that, that can make us nervous, that can make us anxious. But if you are a Christian, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your savior from sin, your soul at the end of this life, whatever trials that he puts before you, whether they're medical in nature or, or you lose a loved one or financially things are a struggle or whatever, whatever trials God puts in front of you, just remember, just remember that, that the blood of Jesus Christ has paid in full your sin. Your relationship with God now is not a hostile one. It's a relationship of peace and those trials that he's putting in your life are designed 
to forge you into Christ's likeness because of his love. Let that reality captivate you and, and feel the love of God at work in your life. You are accepted. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are accepted, you are loved, you are adored by the creator of the universe. Secondly, and I think this goes without saying, just select those that you follow very carefully. The, the human beings that you decide to give your allegiance to, just make sure that you are, that, you know, that you're keeping a close eye on how they live. What are their objectives? Are their objectives to get into power? And I mean, there's this vicious cycle, right? Where a politician, a leader will say to you, I need your support because I need to get into power so I can do good. And then they get, into, they get elected and they're there and then they make all these compromises so that they can get a bigger coalition so they can be reelected. And, and in the meantime, values and things are thrown out the window. Just be very careful. I did, a, I did a thought experiment. I'm, I shared it in the first service because I, I must have had more time because I spoke faster or whatever. But um, here's what I did as my thought experiment. And I'll just let you do it on your own. <clears throat> Go back. In the Bible, the, the qualification for elders is 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. You might jot that down. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. That's the qualification for an, a church elder. In other words, these are the character qualities that a man should have to be an elder in the church. What I did in my thought experiment is I went and I tried to figure out what is the opposite of every one of those character qualities. And I tried to ask myself, am I following anyone today? Am I admiring, am I following, am I supporting anyone today who lives in those opposite qualities? And I was shocked at what I found. I was shocked at what I found. It was a very sobering experience. In other words, take, go to 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Look at the character qualities of an elder of the church. Find the opposite of those things and then ask yourself the question, am I following anyone like this? Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us in your word. We thank you for the example of Jesus Christ. Here is your son, your only son, riding into Jerusalem, knowing, that, knowing what was coming. He had announced it. He knew that he was going to lay down his life and on the third day rise again. He had announced it to his disciples. And he knew what he was riding into. And he knew what it meant. And he did it anyway. Father, may we aspire to be the type of leader, whether it's a leader in our family whether that's a leader of ourselves, whether that's a leader of our employees, whether that's a, a leader in the community, may we aspire to be the type of leader that Jesus was. And we, may we, Father, identify Adonijah-like leaders that we have misguidedly followed. And may we choose differently. And finally, Father, I just pray that you would allow the reality that we have peace with you now through Jesus Christ, that you would allow that reality to refresh us this week. Call it to our minds every time we're discouraged. Call it to our minds every time we're facing trial. 
and allow it to nourish and refresh us and, and quench our thirst this week as we go about our, our days. And then, Father, I just pray that you would give us a meaningful Holy Week, a very meaningful Good Friday, and a joyous Resurrection Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen.